BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to a podcast show about stuff. It's the show about stuff, the Stephen Davis Show. Here's your host, Stephen Davis. Hello to the show about stuff, the Stephen Davis Show. Today, my guest is the Reverend Fred Davy, chairman of the New York City Civil Complaint Review Board and a retired executive vice president of the Union Theological Seminary here in New York. Welcome, Reverend Davey. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great, Stephen. How are you? Oh, I, I'm so blessed to be here and so blessed to be alive. So I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy. Yes. How, how was your period? It was wonderful. It was very festive in the beginning, family, friends, some travel, and then quiet for a week between Christmas and New Year's, which I love and which I needed. So it was a good combination of being able to have real good social time and then having some real downtime. So it was wonderful. Okay. How I generally start the show off is because the show is about you, about just different aspects of your life during your whole period of life. And we always start at the beginning where you came into the world at. Right. So Belmont, North Carolina, Gaston County and the Piedmont of North Carolina. I was born and raised in that town, I stayed in Belmont until I was 18. Small town when I was growing up, Milltown, only about 5,000 people. I'm going to guess about 15, 20 percent of us were, were black. We had a couple of black villages in the town, and I grew up in the main one of those up until fourth grade. We were uh, it was pretty segregated. I went to an all-Black school up through fourth grade. We had Black grocery stores in our little village, and it was a real wonderful, supportive community. And then we integrated schools. Basically, we had a K-12 school in our neighborhood. They closed it, and they dispersed us throughout the county to the white schools, predominantly white schools in the county. I went from a school where I was it was 110% 
black to a school where I was one of three black kids in my class. It was quite a change, but that was the bosom in which I was raised. It's made me the person I am. You know, I came of age on the heels also of the civil rights movement and, and the ways in which faith communities, other communities were involved in. That's very much made me a part of who I am. So Belmont, North Carolina, it's, a, it's, it's now a tony little suburb of Charlotte. It's gone oh, from the okay. mill town to uh, it's increased in population about fourfold. And the local general store is now some swanky little restaurant. And the furniture store is a wine shop. And the pharmacy is wonderful little crafts furniture place. You wouldn't recognize it now. And there, what was farmland and now big uh, hundred, multi hundreds of thousands of dollar homes. And the riverfront that was all woods that I remember visiting and getting in the little rowboat in the little river cove with Miss B. Meisenhammer is now a place for these multi-million dollar homes. So it's a very different place than where I grew up, but it has a fondness in my heart. I have something, uh, a secret to tell you. Yeah. Uh, I I was born here in New York. Right. My father was military. Okay. At Fort Bragg. Right. Okay. So I, I grew up a lot in Fayetteville, North Carolina. I know it well. And I integrated 71st High in Fayetteville in the there 60s, you, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I can, I can very much relate to, to Fayetteville, going to Charlotte and mm-hmm. Greensboro and Durham mm-hmm. and Raleigh. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I, I remember right. those days. But when you made the transition right. as a young child from right. going to an all-Black school to a white school, what was your experiences? So it was traumatic, to be honest, at a at a emotional level. I just did not know what had hit me. I didn't know what to make of this thing. And I had now what I realized was an enormous amount of anxiety around it. I was fortunate because I got a, at least my first year in the fifth grade, I got a teacher who was white, Dixie Forbes, who brought me up to her desk about three weeks in the school and pulled out my transcript from the school that I had gone to, which was called Reed School. And she showed me my transcript, which was mainly A's and B's. And she said, this is what you've done where you were. I said, yes. She says, well, I expect no less of you here. And by third grading period, I was making straight A's at this all white school. And that created a problem in the town. But I did I couldn't process it. All I knew was she was a good teacher. She seemed fair. She was really interested in me. And I was motivated to do well. When I got to the sixth grade, I had a teacher, Miss Helderman, who literally came to my desk, pulled my paper off my table off my desk, balled it up, threw it in a trash can and said, you are Negro children, you're not going to do well in my class. Literally said that. And so my parent, my mom, you know, had to come and it was one teacher consultation after the other. So it was a mixed experience. By the time I got to eighth grade, they were trying to track me in with lower performing students. And another teacher, a white woman, these are all white women, Mrs. Barnett, called me up to her desk one day and said, come on, we're going to the principal's office. Uh-oh. We get to the principal's office. His name was Dalton Mann. Ms. Barnett says to him, Dalton, you get this boy out of this low-performing track now, 
and you put him back in those advanced classes where he belongs. And I think that saved me. My parent, my folks were fighting for me, but it was a very, bad, people had to reinforce their prejudices by what we've seen a lot in education, by creating self-fulfilling prophecies. These kids are not going to perform well in our schools. But there were angels within that system who saw people like me and rescued people like me from the more blatant racism that went on in, in those school systems when we made the change. And I'm grateful for it. Parents were fighting for me. People in the community were fighting for me. But it was also great to have people on the inside who recognized whatever gifts and talents I had and recognized the way in which that school system was trying to suppress them and then, and then worked out for me. So it was a mixed experience, but it started out very anxiety producing for a 10-year-old to be lifted from his environment and put in this really strange and foreign place. I 100% agree with you. And uh, to me, when I reflect back on it, it was like you were a test dummy because mm. they never taught any Black folk and they always went by the, the mantra that they were superior and they were smarter. And all of mm. a sudden they see somebody that's getting better grades than all of them and it just freaked them out. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It uh, it but it un upended some stereotypes, and then yes. people just didn't know how to. They, the the react the response to it was hostility, instead of embracing common humanity. The response in some cases was hostility. The response in other cases, as I've said, was that people recognize a talent like Miss like Dixie Forbes, like Mrs. Barnett. And they helped to cultivate that. And, and that's, been my, that's been my experience for what every system that has wanted to be oppressive. There have been allies, white allies, good folks who recognize that this is not the world that we should have. And they have joined forces to help address and help to try to mitigate the oppressiveness of these systems. And I've always appreciated that. Uh, uh, tell us something about, first of all, the names of your parents yeah. and what did they do? So my mother was Virginia. She was very, unfortunately, early in my life, crippled by arthritis. She had gone to Barbara Scotia College in, Con I think, Concord of Salisbury, North Carolina, Presbyterian school for mainly Black women at the time. My father and my parents divorced when I was really young. My father went to Johnson C. Smith. He been in the Navy, did two terms, stints in the Navy, just as the armed forces were integrating. He got out of the Navy, went to work, post office, went to Johnson C. Smith, and ultimately ended up, his last job was running the food service for the Federal Reserve Bank. Our relationship with him was fraught. I had a wonderful relationship with all of his siblings, his brothers and sisters. They were a big help to my mother and our family. And then I had an extended family on her side. So I had extended family on my dad's side, extended family on my mother's side. But Virginia Hunter, Virginia Lee Hunter Davey was my mother. And Freddie Alexander Davey was my father. Did you have other brothers and sisters? I, I do. I do. I have an older sister. There, She's in Charlotte. She's got two kids and now grandkids, no great grandchild, I don't think. I have a brother who's two years younger than I am. He's also in Charlotte. He's got kids and grandkids and maybe great grands now, maybe. Yeah. And then I have a brother who's about 11 years younger than I am. He's in the Charlotte area. 
He also has children and grandchildren. So yeah, big family. I saw them all over the holidays, which was wonderful. And yeah, so we're close. We're a close knit family. Now, when you went to high school, where did you go to high school at? So in the same town, it's called South Point High School. At one point, it was called Belmont High School, but they changed the name to South Point because we had another number of feeder schools from other little towns in and around the area. That was a, a good experience for me. I was very active in various high school activities. I served as the assistant sports editor and sports editor for our high school yearbook. I was involved um, in other activities there as well. I got best sport, meaning person with the best disposition, the guy who could best take a joke among the senior superlatives that they did in those days. All in all, that was a pretty good experience. And I still stay in touch with a lot of my classmates, both black and white from those days. Now, when you went to high school, it was already integrated yes. for, for a number of years. So yeah, we so had you, all your trauma was in the fourth grade. It wasn't like in high school. Yeah, that's correct. In the fifth grade when schools integrated. By the time we got to high school, we'd all been together for seven years. We all knew each other. We pretty much worked out what we needed to work out. We had some incidents. I remember I led a walk out around some stuff in junior high school. We had well, a, you were a rabble rouser from very early uh, on, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, it was in my <laughs> I told you. I'm a child in your of the DNA. And in my DNA. I'm a child <laughs> of the very end of the civil rights movement. Actually, to tell you a story, when I was nine, the summer of my third grade year, going into fourth grade, the year before schools were integrated, there was an amusement park in our town where Tuesdays were reserved for coloreds quote unquote, that was the only day that black folks could go to the park. And so we decided one summer's day that we were going to integrate the park as kids. And about a dozen of us without telling our parents just went to the park. And these <laughs> burly police officers, they ushered us out, but they closed the park uh, that day and then kept it closed for a year and a half and then reopened it. So it's very much in my DNA. I have a friend that he's from Charlotte also. Actually, he was born in Charlotte, although he didn't live in Charlotte right. for, you know, because his father was a, and mother were professors. And he said that his father was the head of, in Mississippi. He was the head of the Blacks civil rights effort. And they were talking about these kids that were rabble rousing and couldn't understand them. And the father was, the, his father was upset over this happening. And they said, he said, who's the one that's doing this? Your son. Uh, now you went to college where? So I went to Greensboro College, Greensboro, mm -hmm. North Carolina. So it was, uh, I'm Presbyterian, a long line of Presbyterians on my mother's side, but it's United Methodist School. I'm now a trustee. Again, it was another predominantly white situation when I was there. It's not that way anymore. I think it might be 50-50 students of color, non-students of color. I Started out as a physician's assistant major. I ended up as a poli-sci with a poli-sci degree and a minor. And I thrived there. It was a good place for me. I had great mentors. We had, we didn't, we may have had one black professor. My mentors were two white professors there, Jim Hull and Carolyn Smith when I was there, the late Carolyn Byer and the late Dr. James Hall. I ended up being the first black uh, student body president. I was the first black student body vice president and ended up getting the school's highest award, which at that time was a Harold H. Hudson award for both academic 
um, achievement as well as involvement in the community. I, I was dean's list. I should have done better, but had a couple of hiccups along the way. And, uh, and it, it was a wonderful, it turned out to be a wonderful time for me. I had a real bumpy sophomore year, sophomore, first semester sophomore year. My grades plummeted, but I rebounded from that. And, and the school was a great launching pad for me. And now, I, as I said, I serve as a trustee to the school. But it was, it was a great place for me. Now, you went from, when you graduated from undergrad school, did you go directly? I did. I went to uh, Union Theological Seminary, Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond, Virginia. I stayed there for two years. That was, the people there were very kind to me, but it was a little chafing for me. So that was a case when I was there, there were 354 students. There were, I was the only black student on the campus at the time. There was another black student who was enrolled, but he was away on a Midler. And it was then a very Southern Presbyterian seminary that was training primarily people to be Southern Presbyterian ministers or academics. And I had really no interest in being either a Southern Presbyterian minister, nothing wrong with it. It just wasn't where I, my interest was, or an academic. I was very much interested in liberation theologies that were arising at the time. The school hadn't prioritized liberation theology. A friend of mine had gone to Yale, and she said, you should consider coming here. I, she said, I believe it would be just a better fit for you. She, would, she had been at Union uh, Presbyterian in Richmond for one year. So I said, all right, let me apply. I had a fellowship from the Fund for Theological Education. That was a Benjamin Elijah Mays fellow. That, and that fellowship was portable. So it paid for my entire education for three consecutive years. And I could use it at any school I wanted. So I applied the, I got in and I was able to take that fellowship with me from Union Presbyterian to Yale Divinity School. And I um, finished my degree, my master's of divinity degree at Yale. Okay. And then you, you left there and went to where? I came to New York. While I was at YDS, Yale Divinity School, this guy by the name, the late Reverend Calvin Oliver Presley, Calvin O. Presley, who was then the executive director of the New York City Mission Society, came to a lecture at one of my classes about the work of the Mission Society. And he was a Methodist oh, minister. Oh, hold it for a moment. Somebody wants to come in. No, I think, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Damien, what you talking about? <laughs> I was just beginning to talk about you. I'm not getting <laughs> to. I had just raised the issue of the New York City Mission Society. I'm good. When I was going down like that, I was communicating with Bernetta about when to come in. <laughs> I had just mentioned Reverend Presley's name. Yes. Bernetta's iPhone. So how are yes. you? Yes. Oh, there I am. Hey, there I am. Hey, <laughs> when's the last time y'all seen each other? A long time. Yeah, in person, yeah. I had yeah. Probably, let's see, uh, Fred, yeah. you know when they had a 25th anniversary of, and we came down on the train? Yes. Yes. I think that's I'll, probably yes, the last, last time I time. saw you. Yeah. Yes. How long ago? How long ago was when was that? <sighs> yeah. I have to let yeah. my, my my audience know, us old folks, it takes us a while to remember things. Because <laughs> uh, I left City Mission in 83, I believe. And so that would have been, gosh, I just can't figure it out. I have to do the math later and send you a text or something because I right. don't remember. It's been a yes. while. Yeah, yeah, it's been yeah. A while. yeah, but it's good to see you. 
It's good to see you too. And yeah. I, I've heard some things about you. All good for you. Uh -oh. All good. Don't worry. <laughs> I hope so. They're all good. Yes, they're all good. I know you've been working hard in the vineyards and then you right. went on and began to do other things and uplifting folks and so forth and so on. So I'm with you 154% on that. Let's do this. Yes. Um, because I, I purposely brought Fred in on the New York City Mission Society. Y'all mm -hmm. talk about working there at that particular period of time. That's what Fred was talking about. He left Yale and came to New York City Mission Society with Calvin Presley. Yeah. Yes, and I left uh, Washington, D.C. and came to City Mission just before Fred did. Fred, I don't remember if you were there by the time we had that first, the very first person award dinner, which was my really big first assignment. I was there as the director of community relations and had come from graduate school to New York City to work. And then I shortly thereafter, I think I, I, I lost you guys for a minute there. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> I, I was just trying to give a timeline as to mm. when I went to City Mission. And right. I, you came late. I, but my question was, do you recall whether or not you were, uh, attended that very first person award? Who, who got the award? award? Do you remember that? What'd you say? Who got the award? Do you remember? Oh, wow. I think the very first person who got it was Ellinghouse, Mr. Ellinghouse, who was the chairman of um, AT&T or okay. something like that. Okay. And, and of course, Dina Merrill, the yes. actress heiress. She would never let me say that at that time. But the actress heiress, the daughter of Marjorie Merriweather Post. And <laughs> yes, exactly. And so she was the president of the Mission Society at that time. And so she had a lot of her luminaries from Hollywood mixing with folks from the business world. So you know, we met some of everybody. Yeah, we met yeah. folks like Chock Full of Nuts people, the chair lady of Chock Full of Nuts, all kinds of folks who were in a whole other uh, stratosphere yeah, in terms of, of money. TV personalities, Charlie right. Wilson from ABC, I remember. Yes, yes. Uh, a number of different people like that. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. So Fred was there and he was from originally from North Carolina. <laughs> and I was from Arkansas. We was we, we would be talking our Southern talk and so forth and so on and moving on and talking. Did some of everything. He called me Hayes at the time, <laughs> and, and I still called him Fred. I, sometimes I think he was a, a little younger, not that much, but a little younger. And so it was like he was my little brother. Yeah, maybe a month or two younger. <laughs> you watched out for me, and I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I yeah. tried my best because you, you know did. I knew. The slings and arrows that All come right. with uh, living in New City. York City. Yeah, yes. no, big city. Yeah. And I, I, I had gone straight through school. I've been mm -hmm. eight years living in dorms, having all my meals in, front, in the cafeteria. I'd never lived mm. on my own. And the first time I lived on my own was in New York. And I thought, wow. what in the world is Exactly, exactly. But Why I had, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I kept listening to Reverend Presley and I stayed, but uh -huh. I'm glad I did. New York City. Yeah. Well, I, I, listen, New York was not my cup of tea. I'm glad I used to say I did my time. I did my time in New York. And right. so I'm out. I left. I asked the Lord if he would just let me get out with my body and my mind intact. <laughs> you understand? And so I did. Yeah, and I'm yeah. in good shape. And, I, and as I, for me, Washington, D.C. is a better That's blend true. because it blends both worlds. The, the atmosphere of a big city, an international arena, and local living all combined, as opposed to New York, which yeah, I that's think- That's because you've never been to Brooklyn or 
Staten Island or Queens. That they're yeah. just as Washington is as Washington. <laughs> well, you do understand that I had come for many years. My brother lived in Brooklyn for many years. So I was coming to Brooklyn even before I went to Manhattan. And then living in Manhattan was just a whole nother process. I, I, I believe in living where I work. And so I didn't want to have to make that kind of commute from Brooklyn or Queens or Staten Island. And I went to Queens. Staten Island was probably the only borough I didn't get to. Okay. I thank you so much for coming on the broadcast. That's great. I'm glad. And I'm going to be, I'm going to be in DC before this month is out. I'm pretty sure. Okay. So I'm going to make it a point to be in touch. We can grab coffee or lunch or something like that. That works for me. I'd love to do it because I haven't seen you in person in a long time. Yeah. But you're looking the same except a little hair. You too, um, yeah, yeah. But a little I, gray hair, a little gray here and there. There's more to this than meets the eyes. Fred, <laughs> it's good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, too. I appreciate so much having the opportunity to give you a surprise, That's and I will be in touch. I look forward to your coming to Washington. Definitely. You guys have a great conversation. Thank you. Take care, man. Bye. Thank you so much. Uh huh. Thank you. Surprise. Thank you. Now, you were talking about your working at the New York City Mission Society. Right. Did you cut off? You were talking about working at the New York City Mission Society. So go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So I, so Reverend Presley, yeah, was in, he came to talk to my class at Yale. I went up to him. I said, the work that you're doing is the kind of work that I want to do. That is working from a faith perspective to try to make positive social change, positive change, particularly in the lives of people who live at the margins of society and culture. And a month or so after that, he, I got a letter from him asking me to come down to New York City to see him. And I did. And that was probably January, February before I graduated in May. And he said, when you graduate, why don't you come down here and work for me? And I said, OK. And that's what I did. And I, came, I was running two programs. I was running a faith and clergy empowerment program funded by the Ford Foundation and a program focused on supporting Black women in ministry funded by the Lilly Endowment. And I ran those two programs. And then Reverend Presley introduced me to tons of people. He introduced me to the entire sort of city political structure. I got to know Carl McCall, who served a variety of public positions in New York, from state senator in Harlem to UN ambassador to president of New York City Board of Education. He was vice president at Citibank, Citicorps, and he was on the board of the New York City Mission Society. So I got to know him. So between Reverend Presley and Carmel Call, I got to know lots of people in New York. So I did a lot of community engagement work in New York. I became a member, moved to Brooklyn, speaking of Brooklyn, became a member of the Lafayette Avenue Presbyterian Church. Actually, and, and I was ordained as a Presbyterian minister to work at the New York City Mission Society, one of the few people at the time who had an ordination that was not to a church, but that was actually to a nonprofit. I have all the ability to do all the functions that a minister does, but my ordination was to a nonprofit, not to a church. A member of the underground? Yes, they had a very, they were very much involved at the Lafayette Avenue Presbyterian Church in the abolitionist movement. I used to live right around the block from it. No, but that was a that and that was an exciting an interesting time to be in Fort Greene, which yes, was, it was. Like, it on transformation then. And like my little hometown in Belmont, the store across the street in Fort Greene on South Oxford Street that really was just a front for for drug pro, drug dealing is now Tony little coffee shop or something. That's how much Fort Greene changed. I can remember 
being propositioned by ladies of the evening on Fulton Street. Right? Yes, oh, okay. yeah, absolutely. And they had the bars know. over there. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing, you know. And now it's just this exclusive community in New York, but it wasn't. So I remember those days and we did a lot of, um, I was involved with a lot of affordable housing development work, working with churches and faith organizations through something called the Brooklyn Ecumenical Cooperative, BEC. And then I got- Was that with John, uh, Reverend Johnny Youngblood? Youngblood was East Brooklyn Congregation, oh, exactly. And this was further downtown in the Fort Greene, Prospect Heights, Clinton Hill area. Okay. Yeah. And um, that I got to know a lot of public officials during that time. I ended up going to work for Carl McCall when he was at the New York City Board of Education as the president. I was his chief of staff, special assistant to the president. And then I went over to work in the Dinkins administration in the final year, late 90. Was it what would it have been? It would have been late 92, I guess, and all of 90. Three, I think I have that. And uh, I worked for, I was chief of staff to Deputy Mayor Joyce Brown, who happened to be Carmel Call's wife. And that was an incredible experience because I got to use all the sort of contacts I had with faith groups, all the contacts I had with various constituencies that reported up to Dr. Brown and just got to, and, and then got to know lots more elected officials and people in the city, including the just outgoing mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, actually in 1994 performed the wedding for him and Charlene McRae at the picnic house in Prospect Park. And so stayed in touch with him over all those years, but other people too. Ruth Messenger. So I ended up after I left City Hall, I became Ruth Messenger's deputy bar president in her second term. Second term so I was deputy bar president of Manhattan. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And then I had to do after Ruth ran for mayor against Rudolph Giuliani, and I think it was 1997, and she lost, I had to decide, was I going to stay in politics and government or was I going to do something else? And I had been having conversations with people at the Ford Foundation, you know, you know they funded my first project with the New York City Mission Society. They funded other things that I've done. I've been in touch with them over time. And they had an opening for a job managing their portfolio related to faith programs and community development. So I engaged with them around that. They hired me. I did that work. I did my signature project there was to do a national program, national replication of early interventions, working with faith institutions, police, community-based organizations, et cetera, in the lives, early interventions in the lives of young people who had some contact 
with the criminal justice system. And this was to do a diversionary program to try to ensure that those young people did not have further contact with the criminal justice system and to have them diverted to community-based programs that would keep them out of periods of incarceration. We replicated that program in about 10, 15 cities around the country, and some of them are still going to this. I then got invited to, and while I was at Ford, again, I ended up doing some work with the Clinton administration. I actually funded faith groups to do a HUD event in a housing and urban development event in, in Texas. I got introduced to then Secretary of Housing Andrew Cuomo, Sean Maloney, who's now a congressman from New York, was at the White House in a deputy, what do they call it, deputy White House staff position there. And I got to go to the White House for the first time. During that time, I went to a clergy breakfast, my first clergy breakfast at the White House. How, how did you feel walking through the door? It was like, it was surreal. Now, actually, I think before I went to that breakfast, I might have gone to visit Sean at the White House on a Saturday. And I remember there were a couple of things. One, he couldn't, we couldn't go into the Oval Office because I think the rule is no one's in the Oval Office if the president isn't there. I'm assuming cleaning people may be, but no one else. It was quiet there. But I also remember the thing I remember most is that we went to Vice President Gore's office and he had the most high tech office of anyone, it seemed to me, in the White House at the time. And I think Sean made that point. Now, Congressman Maloney, uh, who was then working at the White House, made that point. Anyway, got to know, expanded the network of people that I was involved with, went to work for an organization called Public Private Venture, was asked to help to replicate or help to help to develop and then replicate a reentry program to reduce recidivism among people coming home from prison. I'd gotten to know this guy, Robert Sanchez, who'd just gotten out of prison after about 19, no, more than that. He got 15 years to life. So after 15 years, he'd just gotten out of prison for drug issues. And I got to know through him, a guy by the name of Julio Medina, who's now doing great work in New York. He was just starting his reentry work in East Harlem. And then there was some people at the then Bush White House, who was uh, Bush II White House, who, was, who were interested in this work. So long story short, all this came together. We did this massive prisoner reentry program across the nation with support of, from Ford and NE Casey and lots of money from the Bush Labor Department and Justice Department. And it got amazing results. Working with Julio Medina in New York, Kevin Gay in Florida, other people across the country, we got these amazing results from this program. And then we were invited in 2007, to come to the White House to give a keynote address that I had the honor of delivering on the work of this project. And, and the ironic thing about that is this kid who was a student at the Woodrow Wilson School uh, at Princeton had been watching the work that we were doing at Public Private Ventures, not only the reentry work, but we had some after school work going involving faith-based groups that, that was happening, a, a mentoring program for children of prisoners that former mayor of Philadelphia, Wilson Good was doing some other things. And so this student at Woodrow Wilson School had been watching this work. One of our researchers was actually one of his professors. He asked to meet me, with me sometime after that White House presentation. And he said he was going to graduate soon and he was going to go to Washington and look for a job. And when he found the job, he liked to call me and talk to me about it. So 
He did, and he called and he said, I'm working for the new senator from Illinois, Barack Obama, and I'd like for you to come in, bring your team and brief them on what you're doing. Long story short, that led to a long involvement with the Obama administration. I ended up helping on the campaign. I did agency reviews during the transition for the transition team, and then got invited to the inaugural worship service at St. John, ended up in the motorcade up to the Capitol for the inauguration, which was a crazy thing. And then- Now, uh, when you were riding down the street, were you just looking yeah, I just, both ways and say, yeah, wow. How did I get here? We were <laughs> from on North bus. Carolina. <laughs> yeah, they had us on buses. And I remember uh, Leon Panetta was on my bus. T.D. Jakes was on my bus. Uh, a number of other people. Everybody was there. Oprah Winfrey was there. I actually have a photo right there of me of me and Oprah at the, on the, at the Capitol. And so it was an amazing thing. But I also then ended up getting an appointment from President Obama to be on the first White House off the first White House Faith Council under his administration. It was called the White House Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. And we were able to actually help promote the engagement of the federal government more effectively, I hope, with faith-based and community organizations. And that was great work. And so I was at Public Private Ventures doing this. I was involved with the Obama administration. And then the question became, I, I was going to stay involved with the Obama administration. I got invited to do some work on LGBTQIA issues through an, another foundation called the Arcus Foundation. And so it was a foundation funded by a private guy with his own money, John Stryker. And he focused on social justice with a particular focus on issues related to the LGBTQ. Uh, plus communities in the U.S. and abroad, as well as environmental issues. So I did that work. And one of the things that we supported there was faith institutions that were trying to help create more civil rights for the queer community in America, as well as working with the federal government, the then Obama um, administration, on looking at ways in which federal regulations can could be changed in order to make society more inclusive. Don't ask, don't tell went away under Obama. He got rid of discrimination against gay folks in federal hiring and contracting and things like that, which was all great. So it was great to be able to support that work from a faith perspective as well and to do it at the Arctis Foundation. So, and I did that for a couple of years. I continued to be involved with the folks in DC and then this classmate from Yale by the name of the Reverend Dr. Serene Jones became the president of Union Theological Seminary. And she reached out to me when she first became president, and this would have been like 2008, and asked me if I wanted to join her in her administration. And I, at the time, I said no, because I was still doing the work that I was doing with public-private ventures. I was just beginning to deepen the relationship with the folks in the Obama camp, and, and so I turned it down. She came back again in 2011, August 2011, maybe earlier than that, and asked me once again if I would join. And by that time, I was ready. So I, I became the executive vice president of Union Theological Seminary, which is a work I've done for the last 10 years up until June of this year. 
when and I uh, had the privilege of visiting you in yeah, your you office. Yeah, you did, which was nice. And I really <laughs> appreciate it. And we talked to Brunetta then, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's been a great run. I'm now the senior advisor to the senior strategic advisor to the president. As I think about, as I turn 65 and think about, do I want to step away from some things? So let me just say, at Union, Key, you want to, we wanted to make sure that we had a strong student body, which we were able to maintain good, strong, uh, nationally renowned, internationally renowned faculty, which was great. And we were able to do it strong administrative staff. We were confronted with some really major capital issues, which we dealt with by selling the air rights of the school development rights and doing a mixed use residential and classrooms, community space facility there. It's a tower. It's a big development there, but we're able to right-size the school in so many ways, the seminary that's been so important to America in so many ways, from the neighbors in the 50s and 60s and Paul Tillich to people like Bev Harrison, Emily Towns, the, the Cornell West, who's now back there, and of course, the iconic James Cone, the father of Black liberation theology. So it's, it felt really good to be deeply involved and that work to help stabilize and help to make sure that this institution is going to be around for hopefully another couple of hundred years. But in addition to that, we were very much involved in the public square. We believe that theology in the public square is really important. So along the way, when Bill de Blasio got elected mayor, I was asked to help him organize a clergy advisory council, which I did. I became the chair of the public safety committee of that clergy advisory council. And then somewhere along the way, someone said, the mayor would like to appoint you to the Civilian Complaint Review Board. That is the largest agency of police oversight, civilian police oversight in the nation, and which it should be because it has civilian oversight of the largest police department in the nation. So there are, at the time, there were 13 members on the board. Now there are 15 appointed by the mayor, city council, and public advocate with designees coming from the police commissioner. And it's an agency of about 200 people, budget about $22 million, as I said, a board of 15. It has responsibility for, for adjudicating complaints coming from people in New York against police officers who engage in or are alleged to have engaged in misconduct. So I came on as a board member by that was late 2016. By late 2017, I was the acting chair. By 2018, I was the chair. And we adjudicated tons of cases against officers, made recommendations to the department, wrestled with the department to and the police commissioner to actually implement the disciplinary recommendations we made. One of the more significant ones was after Eric Garner was killed uh, by police in Staten Island or on Staten Island. The Staten Island DA failed to indict the officer who was responsible for that at the time, Daniel Pantaleo. The federal government took a pass on indicting him on civil rights. And so the last stop was the Civilian Complaint Review Board that had the authority to bring charges against him and for excessive force and then to prosecute Officer Pantaleo in a departmental trial at the police department, which is what we did. CCRB lawyers argued the case before a departmental trial judge and won the case. 
the judge agreed with us that excessive force had led to the death of Eric Garner and that Officer Daniel Pantaleo was responsible for that and that he should be termed. We then, that recommendation after the trial went to the police commissioner, final authority lies with the police commissioner, which we are trying to change. And the commissioner then, James O'Neill, finally agreed that all the evidence was too substantial to ignore and fired Officer Pantaleo, which was... Now, now, now uh, you're, you're saying that is so interesting, of course, to me, because as you can see with my shirt... <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And up so people could see and yeah. that, please, I can't breathe, was first uttered by who? Eric Gardner. Eric Gardner, indeed. That I can't indeed. breathe. I happen to be the manager of Selwyn Jones. Um, mm -hmm. Many of my listeners already know that, who is the uncle of George Floyd. And we've started a foundation called A Soulful Heart Memorizing George Floyd, Inc. And mm. we're doing a major national tour across the country and across the world in terms of a thank you tour for George Floyd family. <clears throat> But, right. but I, I say that uh, to to my audience, it is people like you and your organization that open it up so that what happened to George Floyd in terms of justice happened. It has to start someplace. Right. Right. And you, you yeah. What you. Your organization was the one that really kicked it off. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, civilian oversight of police departments is really key. And when you have, and, and, and they need to be appropriately resourced so that they can do their jobs. When you have a police department as big as the one in New York, uh, $5 billion budget, 35,000 police officers, probably another Twelve to 15,000 employees doing other types of work, massive intelligence capacity that it has, the law enforcement capacity that officers have because they have a badge and a gun. They need to be accountable to the people, to the people of the city of New York. And civilian oversight is a way to do that. Now, we worked hard to strengthen civilian oversight in New York City. We got the ability to investigate officers who were engaged in false official testimony or, or a false testimony under oath during the course of investigations, the ability is to address sexual misconduct, the ability to adjudicate officers, to discipline officers who engage in racial profiling, and the list goes on. We expanded the jurisdiction. We were sued time and time again by the PBA as we continue to expand the authority with the help of the advocates, with the help of the city council members, um, both Donovan Richards, who's now the Queensboro president, and Adrian Adams, who they both chaired the public safety committee of the city council. They were excellent. Councilmember Adams is about to become the speaker, or may now be the speaker of the city council. They've been great leaders on civilian over strengthening civilian oversight of the NYPD through the Civilian Complaint Review Board, CCRB. So we've worked hard to expand and strengthen the role of the CCRB. We have a disciplinary matrix now that oversees what kind of discipline the um, officers will get so that it's not left necessarily to the discretion of the department. Signed an MOU in February of last year with then Police Commissioner Dermot Shea to say that the CCRB's disciplinary recommendations would be adhered to by the department. 
unless there was some extraordinary reason to deviate from them. That's met with some success, but we still there's still a lot more we need to do. I do think... I, go ahead. Wait, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I do think the Civilian Complaint Review Board needs final authority over the cases that the CCRB adjudicates. We've been advocating for that. Even though I'm leaving the board at the end of January, I told Mayor-elect Adams back in July when he became the, or June when he became the Democratic nominee, that was not my intent to stay on as, as chair much past the first quarter of this year, anticipating that he would be mayor, and he is. And then when he was actually elected in November, I congratulated him. I told him then that I was going to follow through with my plans to end my tenure with the board in January, which I'll do at the end of this month, but I'd be willing to help any way I could. I'm proud to have served on his transition team. I served on the public safety and justice uh, committee of the transition team and we're proud to do that, made a set of recommendations and we'll work with him and his administration in any way I can, but we're going to continue to push with his administration, with others, state legislators and others who've been allies on this work for the Civilian Complaint Review Board to have final authority over its recommendations so that the, so that the department is truly accountable to the people of the city of New York, which is only as it should be. And I would like to add that <clears throat> this is not anti-police. This is life. And it's yeah. about fairness, equal justice, and civility within the city, as you said, should have someone to review what's happening and not sweep it under the rug. Right. You understand the, the tremendous pressures that police officers are under. That's understandable. But you also understand that you just can't walk into somebody's house and shoot them and, and no accountability. With impunity. No. I couldn't agree more. I am not an abolitionist. I believe we need police. I'm not a defund guy, although I do think we need serious reform. And a part of that reform should look at what police are being funded to do. So I'm not a I'm not a defund guy. I'm not an abolitionist, but I am. Let's be serious about reform and let's be serious about oversight. It only helps. I hear you hear the complaints about how the department isn't respected, how it's hamstrung, but respect gets respect. And and I think the prior mayor, he didn't always get credit for it, but he did go a long way to try to improve police community relations by particularly in last year and a half being extremely supportive of the CCRB and the expansion of CCRB's authority. We uh, recently just got the authority to initiate our own complaints. We no longer have to wait on a citizen or someone to file a complaint. If we see wrongdoing through video or something like that, the agency can initiate its own complaints. So the mayor went a long way in the former mayor and trying to support the community to have better relations with the police through accountability and oversight. But there's, there's obviously more to be done here. So we're not anti-police. We're not, we believe that the city needs police. We believe that they should be adequately resourced, but they should also be adequately held accountable. And that's what we're after here with the CCRB. And I think it's a stellar group of board members that we have now. They'll get good leadership in the chair's position once I'm no longer there. And then I'm willing to work with the CCRB, with the Adams administration, with anyone, with the advocates, pub, other public officials to try to continue to strengthen civilian oversight of the NYPD. 
Final question, future. What's in your future? The thing that I haven't talked about is that one of the things that I'm also doing now is I'm senior advisor to an interfaith group headquartered in Chicago, but it's a national interfaith group. It's going to become Interfaith America right now. It's known as IFYC. And we're focused, um, I'm focused there on particularly looking at the role of Black interfaith leadership in America. People often think that we came to these shores as Christians. We did not. We came to these shores as Black people representing a variety of religious traditions from Islam to traditional African religion. And that has played itself out in the lives of Black communities for now centuries. We also have built alliances with other within the Black community as interfaith people and with other people of faith throughout the country. That's a story that really hasn't been told, and it's a resource. Black interfaith engagement is a resource that has not always been tapped. King, he joined hands with Heschel. He looked to Gandhi. Abraham Joshua Heschel, a major Jewish during the 60s, was a a professor at Jewish Theological Seminary across the street from Union Theological Seminary here in New York. Dr. King was very close to him, very close to Dr. King and Malcolm X, ultimately had conversations about what it meant to be, you know, Black men of different faith who were about the same thing. Dr. King had engagement with Gandhi, this interfaith, Black interfaith experience is rich and deep in America, and I think is a source of source of energy for a serious positive change. So I'm working with this group, IFYC Interfaith America, to promote Black interfaith work for positive social change, and particularly with this assault that we currently have on democracy. I think interfaith leadership Black interfaith leadership is going to be really important. So it is to, so I'm going to do that work for a while. We will have, we will launch a couple of events. We have a big event event next week on voting and the sacredness of the vote for Black people and other marginalized populations. We hope to do a major Black History Month event soon. We're developing a relationship with the Smithsonian Institute and the National African American Museum of History and Culture. And we hope to be announcing projects with them within the next several months. So I want to be involved in that work. I'm also a commissioner with the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. We monitor U.S. foreign policy to see, to ensure that it is helping to promote religious freedom around the world. Some travel will come up on that. Nigeria is one of the countries that I've been looking at. There's some troubling stuff coming out of Ghana when it comes to religious minorities and not just Christian minorities in these countries. There are other religious minorities as well. There are, there are expressions of Islam that don't always fit the sort of predominant, the predominant Islamic sort of communities in these countries. We want to make sure that, that, those, that those alternative voices within Islam, within Christianity, people like the Yazidis and the Hamadis and others, the Benai, the Baha'is and others have an opportunity to express their faith without oppression and that the U.S. government supports that religious freedom. So I'm on this commission. I was appointed by Senator Chuck Schumer. I want to do some of that work. So even though I'm winding down a little bit at you, I'm engaged with Interfaith America. I'm engaged with international interfaith work. I want to continue to work on over the civilian oversight of police and police reform. And uh, so that's hopefully I'll be able to do that and uh, continue a little bit of this, as you called it when I started, rabble-rousing until I breathe my life. I, I want to thank you so much for being on my broadcast. It's, sure. it's been a pleasure. Fine um, as well. 
And I wish you all the best in, in your future endeavors. Thank you. That's it for Thank the show you. about stuff, the Stephen Davis Show. Join us next week for another wonderful topic. Bye. Thank you for tuning in this week. Hope you enjoyed this show about stuff. See you next time. Visit the New Federal Theater's website at www.newfederalheater.com to see upcoming performances and to donate today. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.